The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Okay, so we left it where um, both Janasoni and Palutaka are um, praising the Buddha. And then later, Janasoni actually sees the Buddha and tells him exactly what had transpired between him and Palutaka. And I imagine that this, um, again, there's no, that memorization must have been a, a faculty that people really had at that time. There's no reading or watching TV or things like that. So he just says verbatim. And the Buddha responds by saying, At this point, Brahman, the simile of the elephant's footprint has not yet been completed in detail. As to how it is completed in detail, listen and attend carefully to what I shall say. And then the Buddha gives his own simile of the um, elephant's footprint. Suppose an elephant woodsman were to enter an elephant wood and were to see in the elephant wood a big elephant's footprint, long in extent and broad across. So far the same as what Palotica is saying. A wise elephant woodsman would not yet come to the conclusion, indeed, this is a big bull elephant. Why? In an elephant wood, there are small she-elephants that leave big um, footprints. So if you want a male big elephant, there could be a female that has just as big footprints. So... It may not, um, in fact, be accurate just based on the clues to see that. But then he goes on. Um, He follows that elephant and sees a big elephant footprint and some scrapings high up. Right? Elephants are big. So when they're going through the woods, they they scrape the trees. And the Buddha says... But you still can't come to the conclusion that's a big bull elephant because maybe it's a female elephant with big feet that's tall. And then the Buddha continues, maybe you go through the woods, you see a footprint, scrapings up high, and marks where tusks have been. So three clues. And the Buddha says, still you cannot come to the conclusion that that's a big bull elephant because there are she-elephants who have big feet that are tall and have tusks. And then um, the, he goes on to say, it is not until you see a big footprint, scrapings, marked by, truck, marked by tusks, broken off branches, and then actually see for yourself the big bull elephant that you can actually come to the conclusion that this is a big bull elephant. Makes sense, right? And it makes sense that the Buddha would say this in response to Janasodhi and Palotika because they are basing their um, praise of the Buddha not on their own experience, not what they have seen, not what they know, but what they have heard from others, from clues they've gotten from others. So, and then um, the Buddha then says, um, here's how to see and know the big bull elephant. Here's how to see and know that the blessed one 
I forgot now, what is that exact verse? The blessed one um, is, is enlightened, the, um, the Dhamma is proclaimed well, and the Sangha is practicing in the good way. And he's going to give the gradual training that in just a moment we're going to talk about. I keep on talking about this, right? The gradual training. Before we get there, I'm going to give you one more context because um, I think it's really useful. We're going to look at two paths side by side and see how they um, compare because they're different. And it's really, you don't, can't really appreciate the difference until you compare them. So I'm going to give you the context for one other um, situation in which the Buddha is giving a training, the gradual training. This is what we're calling is the discovery of truth, which is in Majjama 95, the Chunky Sutta. And that doesn't have an English translation. Is, Chunky is somebody's name. So in this sutta, the Buddha is on Dharma tour. Kind of like, you know, how rock bands go on tour. He's on tour. And he has um, 500 monks with him. 500 is just a number that means really big. And um, But he has a good reputation because the Brahmin householders... So that must mean that he's in a town where there's a lot of Brahmins. So maybe not all the Brahmin priests, but the Brahmin householders are going to see him. So they're, everybody's going to the Sal Grove, this particular place north of town where the Buddha and his monks are staying. Chunky is... Uh, the most senior Brahmin in that district. That um, region was given to him by King Pasenadi, kind of like um, um, like a fiefdom. You know, we have serfs and fiefs. I don't know exactly that's how it was, but that's idea. That this Brahmin was like the, the lord of that area, and the um, people who worked there would give a portion of the, the portion of their crops to him or something. So he's very wealthy, and this area happens to be really um, a prosperous area with lots of food and water and um, things to support a town. So Chunky's kind of the big cheese in the area. It's midday again, and he's going up to the top of his palace to take a nap. And when he's up at the top of his palace, I'm not sure why he goes up there to take a nap, um, he sees, oh, there's all these people that are going somewhere. And he asks his attendant, Where all, where's everybody going? And the attendant says, oh, haven't you heard the recluse Gotama is in town? A good report has been made of him. And he says these really wonderful things about the Buddha. And... Um, Chunky says to his attendant, Oh, 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 I want to go. Tell them to wait. Go down there and tell them to wait for me. In the sutta, it says there's 500 of them. Again, another big number. And the attendant goes, says that, and some of the more senior ones come back and say to Chunky, It is not proper. You should not go see this recluse Gotama. You are very senior Brahmin. Instead, the recluse Gotama should come see you. Right? I used to work in corporate America. I know how this works, right? You go to your boss's office, right? You know, there's kind of this idea of hierarchy and who goes where and stuff like this, right? So um, 
Chunky says to these senior Brahmins who came to talk him out of this, said, oh, I should say, and the Brahmins give the reason to um, Chunky. And I used to, um, the way I printed this out didn't come out the way that I wanted. I'll see if I can do this from memory. They say, um, you are a teacher. You have all these Brahmin students. You are, you know, well-established. You are wealthy. You have all this property. You um, are attractive. This, in, the, in ancient India, was this belief that if you are virtuous, you are beautiful. So you are attractive. You are virtuous. Um, there are a few other really... Oh, you're pure uh, in your lineage. You're, um, that was very important to them as well. It's a really nice list, setting up the qualifications of Chunky, right? And then um, Chunky responds, yes, this is true, but the recluse Gotama comes from an even more pure lineage. He um, had wealth and gave it away. He is very attractive and has the 32 marks of of a great man. I won't go into that, but for those of you who know... Um, and not only is he the teacher of many, he's the teacher of teachers of many, and goes on and on with everything that he says is a little bit better that he himself is saying, right? So we have to keep in mind this is Buddhist literature, right? But this is the most senior Brahmin really praising the Buddha again. So they say, okay, well, if you say that, we'll go. So Chunky with 500 people go to see the Buddha, who's with 500 people in this hall. So it's a big gathering. When they arrive, the Buddha is talking to some very senior Brahmins. And they're having amiable conversation. But um, there's this one uh, Brahmin student. He's described as 16 years old, with a shaved head. and But, well, he knows the Vedas. Right? This is what's important to Brahmins. And he keeps on interrupting the conversation. Buddha turns to him and says very respectfully, Venerable sir, please do not interrupt us. We are having a conversation here. When we are finished, you may then speak. Chunky doesn't like this because this student was his student. The Chunky says to Gotama, Please do not speak that way to Baharadvaja. Um, he's very learned and says his qualifications. He knows the Vedas and all these things that are important to the Brahmins. And the Buddha says, okay. Now is the beginning of a debate. Because Baharad Vajja, this um, Brahmin student says, he um, says to the Buddha, um, Master Gautama, With regard to the ancient Brahmanic hymns, the three Vedas, that have come down through oral transmission and in the collections, the Brahmins come to the definite conclusion only this is true. Everything else is wrong. What does Master Gotama say about that? So this Brahmin student is saying, you know, actually our tradition, which has been handed down through generations, we've memorized, this is true and everything else, why should we even bother listening to you guys? And um, the Buddha responds, well, among the Brahmins here, is there anybody 
who can say, I know this. I see this. What's in, like in the Vedas? Only this is true. Anything else is wrong. And the Brahmin student says, no. Right? Because they are memorizing texts, doing ritual sacrifices, doing mantras. They're not necessarily knowing or seeing what's being spoken about in the Vedas. Those were, they were known and seen by the ancient Brahmins. It was their tradition. Okay, so the Buddha says, if none of you here have, is there anybody in the past seven generations of teachers? Maybe there's, it's been passed down that they know and see. And the Brahmin student says, no. He said, okay, well, maybe the authors, if we use that word author lightly, the creators of the Vedas, did they know and see things? And the Brahmin student says, no. So then the Buddha says, well, suppose there were a file of blind men, each in touch with the next, The first one does not see, the middle one does not see, and the last one does not see. So too, in regard to their statement that Brahmins seem to be like a file of blind men, the first one, the seers, the second one, the teachers from the seven generations back, and the last one does not see. What do you think, Brahmin? That being so, does not the faith of the Brahmins turn out to be groundless? And um, this Brahmin student responds, Oh, but wait, wait, wait. The Brahmins honor this not only out of faith. We believe this out of oral tradition. So the idea of that, you know, this has been our tradition for years and years. It's been passed around, so therefore it's authoritative. And then the Buddha responds that um, just because you have faith in it or just because it's part of your tradition doesn't mean it's true. You should know and see for yourself. So we can see now the context of these two different suttas. In 27, the elephant's footprint, where these individuals have all this faith in the Buddha based on what other people have seen. And here in the Chanki Sutta 95, they um, have faith on their own tradition, not by what they have seen, but by just because it's part of their tradition and they have heard it. So I'll end with this little bit about um, the 95. Um, this Brahmin student, for me, it's uh, significant that as a student, it's a young man, he's 16 years old, so maybe he has a little bit of curiosity, maybe he hasn't spent his whole life in this particular tradition. He asks the Buddha, well, how do you discover truth? How do you know and see? As opposed to how do you just memorize stuff? I know how to memorize. How do you discover truth? So this is now the path of practice that we're going to talk about. Okay, so um, I, in order to facilitate this, I created a handout in which I um, create bullet points of the different stages of the paths of practice and these two paths next to each other so we can talk about them. 
with the idea, remember earlier I said about, you know, kind of like Google Maps? Well, this is like really high up, this handout, because you didn't, we don't want to all just read and read, read all these suttas. Instead, what's in there in the kind of the nitty-gritty of what's in there? And um, they're organized by the context of the path, which I've just described to you, the preconditions for the path, which I'm going to talk about, and then sila, samadhi, and panya. And Jim, can I give these to you? And you can, I'll keep a copy for me. Thank you, Jim. So you can see on this handout that um, I'm just comparing 27 and 95 and put them in these different buckets. And we'll start with the um, preconditions for the path. This is something that we don't talk about so much um, as Dharma talks, that um, remember in the stories that there needs to be a place to go, there needs to be a path, and there needs to be somebody who shows the way in which to go. So that's part of the preconditions. So in Majjhima 27, so MN stands for Majjhima Nikaya, this book, 27, And then I numbered these, number one, a Tathagata appears in the world. And for those of you who don't know, that little mark there is a (coughs) section mark, and um, section 11. So if you were to look into this book, um, it's mostly by paragraphs, paragraph 11, but some sections have more than one paragraph. So so 27.11, a Tathagata appears in the world. So... um, this is the beginning of the path, according to the Buddha, of how he's um, explaining this to John the Sony. And um, there's this stock phrase, the Tathagata, um, when he, de- oh, I should, maybe I should say what a Tathagata is. That's how the Buddha talks about himself. He refers to himself as the Tathagata. He uses the word I as well, but... And... Um, and there's a stock phrase that describes him. But when he is saying here, a Tathagata appears in the world, and he says here, which has seen for himself and has realized with direct knowledge. Right. So he's emphasizing that I um, have seen and I have known. It's worth listening to me. And then a householder hears the Dhamma. So the um, Tathagata gives, says the Dhamma, Somebody hears it and then acquires faith in the Buddha. There isn't a lot of detail given here, except that the fact that um, after somebody hears the Dhamma, they, something stirs in their heart, is how I'm interpreting it, and it resonates with them. And they now have a faith in the Buddha, that this individual is somebody that's worth listening to. And then in this particular sutta, that individual then goes forth. That's the expression for ordains, becomes a monk or a nun. So we can contrast this over in the Chanki Sutta, Majjhima 95. It starts a little bit different, that um, it's not necessarily a Tathagata, but it's a bhikkhu. A practitioner investigates the teacher for greed, hatred, or delusion in mind or behavior. And specifically, they um, are investigate them in this way. Uh, 
investigates him in regard to three kinds of states. States based on greed, states based on hate, and states based on delusion. And asks himself, are there in this venerable one any states based on greed such that with his mind obsessed by those states while not knowing, he might say, I know. While not seeing, he may say, I see. Or he might urge others to act in a way that would lead to their harm and suffering for a long time. So you want to make sure that if you're going to be following somebody, that they're, they, this individual, in fact, is only saying what they have seen and what they have known for themselves. And once you've investigated that, um, in the Chanki Sutta, step two is to place faith in the teacher. Presumably you don't have to investigate the Buddha in the 27, because the Buddha is telling you, I know directly, and maybe there's something about his presence or the experience of being with him. And then also, um, step three in the Chanki Sutta is to visit the teacher. Maybe in um, today, that would be as similar as listening to their Dharma talks or read their books or something. Hear the Dharma, five. Six, memorize the teachings. We could also think about as remember the teachings. It's one thing to just hear things. It's another to really um, um, take it in. Seven, examine the meaning of them. Think about them. And number eight, gain a reflective acceptance. This could also be um, do some reflection on, does this make sense what this person is saying? Is this, um, should I trust this? And then accept them. So there's, um, to interact with the Dharma, as well as to, um, as well as have faith in the teacher. Let's see if I... So in this case, um, faith in Manjama 27 is in the Buddha after hearing him speak. And faith in 95 is in the bhikkhu or teacher after investigating him. But it's interesting that faith in both of these cases is a precondition for the path. It's a place to start. Jim. Yeah, I think you skipped the number four of paying respect to the teacher. Oh, sorry. And I was curious as to how you see that. I mean... Yes, so there's a, um, a few ways to interpret that. One is that um, in ancient India, and perhaps even today, and perhaps other places in the world, there is a real um, etiquette that is... Um, followed. You'll see this in lots of suttas if you read them, that whenever somebody approaches to this, uh, the Buddha, they do this um, amiable and cordial talk and sit to one side. That is just kind of the expected etiquette. So that's one thing. That's to pay respect, is to follow, follow the kind of the rules. The second is, if this teacher is a monk and you are a woman, then you are not alone with a teacher when you're teaching, or maybe you're not sitting too closely or something like that. It's um, just kind of follow the norms of what's expected of that time. And I would say also that um, in this situation, the Brahmin is talking to John Asoni, and in the 
um, Brahmanical tradition, there's a very distinct way also that students talk to teachers. So I think it's just a way of to kind of follow the cultural norms, be respectful of that. Maybe it's the same as don't wear your shoes here and snap your gum during meditation. That's kind of... <laughs> I don't that's how I'm holding it. Are there any other questions? Yes, Bill. Diana, you mentioned something about we follow the teachings because we have faith in them. Um, but that use of the word faith um, reminds me too much of uh, what you were saying just a little bit earlier about how the Buddha knocked down the Brahmanical teachings um, where the Brahmins followed the ancient, ancient teachings kind of out of faith, but they hadn't seen for themselves. So uh, I prefer the uh, translation of sada uh, instead of using the word faith more like confidence and maybe part of the reason you know there's a little bit of past history here that you have confidence is that you've seen a little bit how they work or you've seen a realized teacher and you start to have some confidence based on that so you don't fully understand it but you're you say I want to go here I want to Check this out. Makes sense. Yes, uh, thank you, Bill. And there are some translators, and I think Gil, he very often uses the word confidence for Sada rather than faith. Because I think many of us, perhaps, faith is a loaded word. But here, um, notice that it's not a particular belief about only this is true and everything else is wrong. That's what the Buddha is saying you shouldn't do. This is faith in a teacher, an instructor, saying, I think this person has something that's worthwhile listening to. That's what the faith is in. And it's based on hearing the Dharma or investigating them. So confidence, perhaps, would be um, a good way to talk about it. Thank you. Okay, so now... um, Oh, maybe one last... Thing that I will highlight. I said this, but I want to say it again. Oh, yes. Sorry. Oh, Arthur. Arthur, yes. Yes, we'll use the microphones for our friends that are listening. Um, so, um, um, looking at... Um, Five, six, seven, and eight. Um, hears the Dhamma, memorizes, examines, and gains reflective acceptance. So that's a really interesting sequence. Um, uh, it's not how we today would look at this, and it it seems like it's um, reflective of the way things were learned and understood at the time. Here's the Dhamma. So you, hear, you would hear the Dhamma, and it might make some sense or might touch something, resonate with you. Um, but rather than examine it, they memorize it first, which is not what I would do. Um, but that's how they would come to study it, because uh, I guess it wasn't written. Uh, I, I mean, I'm saying this this way, but actually, um, 
I, I'm phrasing it, uh, it's a question. Um, I just find that sequence interesting in terms of how somebody 2,500 years ago might have acquired this information. Yes, I think you bring up a good point. Um, so this is the way that I'm imagining it, that um, at this time it wasn't so easy to have access to the Dhamma. The teachers maybe weren't... The, giving um, public talks. Maybe they were meditating all the time. And there certainly weren't um, meditation centers like there are today, you know, uh, books and um, audio dharma, these types of things, right? So you had to make a little bit of effort. And then when you did hear it, you would um, memorize because that was their practice. That's what they did, memorize. But also, I think we could translate part of this word is remember. So maybe the way that I'm holding that is try it out a little bit. Remember it and try it out in your life. And that's part of the examine it. It's like, oh, does this make sense to me? Not only intellectually, cognitively, but in my life. And then um, come to an acceptance of it. Is that answer your question, Arthur? More or less. I, I would see it a little bit differently. I would see the memorizing, since they didn't have a book to look at it and study it and to try and examine the meaning, they would memorize it and then examine the meaning from what they memorized. And I've actually uh, known monks who, who, studied, who have studied that way. Um, yes, I would. Currently, yes, I would say actually that's very true in Southeast Asia today. If I know um, some, if you ordain as a young boy, that uh, you memorize suttas before maybe perhaps you understand them or something. So yes, that's is a practice. Are there any more questions about the preconditions for the path? Okay, so now we're going to move on to sila, ethics, which in the Eightfold Path includes um, speech, action, and livelihood. If you look at this table, the thing that really jumps out is chunky sutta, there's no sila, right? uh, It's just not in there. And uh, with 27, I have a number here, number 5, A, B, C. It's actually quite long. There's actually a lot of detail in the sutta about this. But um, can anybody hypothesize, why do we think that there is not any ethics included in one of these, in the Chanki Sutta, and while there is in another one? Do you have any ideas? Yes, and there's a microphone right in front of you. Uh, well, the first step in um, the chunky, like chunky, like chunky, chunky peanut chunky butter. Sutta. <laughs> That's how I'm thinking That's about it. Well, thank you. Um, is that the the student investigates the teacher for greed, hatred, or delusion? So it seems like that type of person would already be very grounded in ethics um, because that's what they're that's the first thing that they're looking for um, in a teacher. Great, excellent. 
Any other ideas? Oh, um, well, I'm not sure I have this quite right, but it seemed like if they were coming out of the Brahmanic tradition, I would guess that um, code of ethics was was a, a big part of that. So maybe there was just an assumption that one would at least follow some code of ethics. Yes, I think that's a great um, idea as well. The Buddha here is talking to, he's in the company of senior Brahmins, he's talking to a Brahmin student with his qualifications, and we can assume that they already have um, ethics. Any other ideas? What about the idea that maybe you don't need ethics? <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I, I like the both um, examples that you guys gave, and that's kind of how I'm holding it. But uh, that's why I think it's kind of um, helpful to put these teachings in their context, is when we see something like this. And also maybe why um, it's helpful to um, know more than one path, perhaps, because maybe just like um, I'm putting little numbers and bullet points and tables here, maybe, I don't know, maybe it this, for this particular um, section, Sila, it's we're zoomed out of Google Maps so much that we can't even see... Uh, Sila here. Maybe at this particular point, the Buddha, I don't know. I, I don't know. I'm just making this up. There's just different ways to hold this. Maybe there's, he felt like there should be detail somewhere, and maybe it's so obvious I don't, don't even have any detail elsewhere. So I'm going to spend a little, um, just a little bit of time talking about um, the Sila here because. Um, I wrote here, follow the rules for monastics for Majjhima 27, section 13. And bodily conduct, verbal conduct, and livelihood. I think many of us, when we think of sila, we think of the precepts, the five precepts that many of us as lay practitioners, to refrain from killing, to refrain from taking what is not given, sexual misconduct, harsh speech, or wrong speech and um, intoxicants. That's actually not what is in here. It's close, but it's not what's in here in this list. Instead, we have um, to abandon the killing of living beings, taking of what is not given, in celibacy and false speech. So far, so good. That kind of goes along with our precepts. But then there's more about speech, um, malicious speech, harsh speech, and gossip. Okay, so now we're talking about the um, right actions, for those of you who know, I'm sorry, uh, 10 skillful actions. That's part of that. But then it goes from there to abstain from injuring plants. He's talking about monks here. And apparently at this time in the um, ancient India, I don't know if this is true, this is what I've heard, that um, other religious 
practitioners believed that plants had a, a soul and you shouldn't injure them because it would be a type of killing. And the Buddha um, just wanted to be respectful of those other religious traditions. And so he wanted his monks to behave in a way that was respectful of all the other religious traditions. I don't know if that's true. And also um, included here is to um, eat only one meal a day. So this is something that we've heard that's for the monastics. And then it goes on, um, abstain from dancing, wearing garlands, high beds. This we've also, for those of you who have um, done like the eight precepts, these are included in the eight precepts. But then it goes on to, and to abstain from accepting Sheep and goats, women and children, slaves, gold and silver, raw grain, raw meat. So all kinds of things. It uh, talks about livelihood. So for a monk, this is their livelihood. So kind of goes into details of what to do, of what they should not accept as part of their um, donna and alms as well as they should refrain from going on errands for somebody else, buying things, selling things, using false weights and measures while you're buying and selling, which you shouldn't be doing. And you should abstain from uh, defrauding other people, using trickery. I imagine that maybe there were some of um, either... Uh, ascetics or Brahmins who were doing this type of thing, who were saying, I have supernatural powers and I can do this, and would, tricking people out of money or, I don't know, running errands could maybe like, oh, I'll figure out the best day for you to get married, or, you know, these types of things. So the Buddha is saying, you shouldn't be doing this. And one that uh, is probably for all of us, I would say, you should abstain from wounding other people, murdering them, plunder and violence. So this kind of goes without saying, I would like to think. Okay, so that's the sila part. Now we're going to move on to samadhi. And in the Eightfold Path, Samadhi has three elements. Effort, mindfulness, and concentration. Actually, maybe before I go to Samadhi, should I, I should ask, I should pause. Does anybody have questions about the sila part? Oh, okay. Um, so meditation has effort, mindfulness, and concentration. And the way that I think about this is the effort part is about creating the conditions for meditation. And then there's different types of meditation, mindfulness and concentration. But mindfulness is used broadly in this, um, in this uh, instance, in the uh, version of the gradual training. So in, the, um, in 27, step number six, the monk becomes content with robes and alms. Now, why would this be part of samadhi? It's because samadhi in general is about mental cultivation. And so having some contentment is a way to bring some ease or some peace to your mind. It's like the opposite of agitation, of being agitated about um, what, how much food you're getting or how much food you're not getting or what food your neighbor got or the clothes or the robes or something. 
And then um, next is to restrain the senses. And this is um, also about kind of keeping in your mind um, some ease and some peace. Let's see if I'm. Here's the. Um, it goes through this for all of the six senses. You know, in Buddhism, there's six senses the five that we normally know as well as the mind. On seeing a form with the eye, he does not grasp at its signs and features. Signs and features we could think of as um, its um, obvious characteristics and its details. That's kind of signs and features. Since if he left the eye faculty unguarded, evil, unwholesome states of covetousness and grief might invade him. So he practices the way of restraint. He guards the eye faculty. He restrains the eye faculty. So I think this is true, right? If you're on a diet and you don't want to eat cookies, you don't go into a cookie store. Because um, covetousness and grief, and grief um, could be like, why why don't I have it? I want it. I want more or something like that. So it's the same idea, though, to kind of support meditation. You're um, limiting your interaction with those things that are not going to support kind of um, settling down and letting go. So restraint of the senses. That's true with the eye, ear, nose, mouth sensation and mind. And then number eight is to act in full awareness. That's in um, section 16. So one thing that I'll say um, about this version of the um, Majjama Nikaya is that the translator is Bhikabodhi. He's translated also um, the Samyutta and Angudra. And I've been studying Pali, and I've been looking at how Bhikabodhi translates. I think he's a genius. It's just amazing. Pali is a difficult language. It's so different than the way we do it. And I just think he's, I have so much respect. But Bhikabodhi, when he was translating um, the Majjama, probably many of us have done something like this. He started out as, it says here, it's actually translated by Bhikabodhi and Bhikabodhi. Bhikabodhi was, you know, I don't remember exactly what era this was, but he was a, um, I think he's a Brit, I think he's an English person, who wanted to translate um, this into English, the Majjhima and I think this was in the 60s or 70s, I'm not sure when. And, um, and then he became ill and he died. Nanamoli didn't finish. He did most of it, but it was still needed to be cleaned up, and Nanamoli was going back through making changes. And Bhikkhu Bodhi said, oh, I'll just finish this project. And I can imagine that Bhikkhu Bodhi said, I'm sure it won't be that much work. <laughs> I'll just finish, you know, Nanamoli's already done most of it. Well, later we hear Bhikkhu Bodhi, who's alive today, and he's been here at IMC. And I've met him. He's a wonderful man. Um, that it turned out to be a lot of work, and he had to redo a lot of it. But now when Bhikkhu talks about things here in the Majjhima Nikaya, he talks about how he wishes that some things were translated a little bit different and that he had followed Nanamoli with translation choices, but now today he would make different choices. And in fact, 
When Bhikkhu Bodhi did the Anguttara and the Samyutta, he does make different translation choices. I'm saying this because here, acts in full awareness, Bhikkhu Bodhi says that he would actually call this clear comprehension. And we've probably heard this for the Satipatthana Sutta, for those of us that do mindfulness. So this is a type of um, clear comprehension which in the um, suttas has a number of different meanings. And as I said, we know it, those of us who have studied the Satipatthana. But um, here, it's given specifically, which is also included in the Satipatthana, as um, one acts in full awareness, that is with clear comprehension, or clearly knowing, is another way you can translate Sampajanya, X clearly knowing when going forward and returning. X clearly knowing when looking ahead and looking back. When flexing your limbs and extending the limbs. Um, when wearing the robes and um, carrying your bowl. When eating and drinking. When using the toilet. When talking, when in silence. So in general, what this idea is, that clearly knowing the purpose of what you're doing and the suitability of what you're doing, as well as just being present and mindful of what you're doing. That's kind of the intention here. So notice that we're still in the samadhi bucket here, but we're not actually sitting on a cushion yet. These are all things that we're doing with our minds, restraining the senses and being of, um, paying attention to our activities. And then we get to establish mindfulness, step nine here in, the, in 27. And um, the way that it's described here in 27 is that the, um, the practitioner... Um, possessing this noble mindfulness and clear comprehension, resorts to a secluded resting place. The forest, the root of a tree, a mountain, a ravine, a hillside cave, a charnel ground, a jungle thicket, an open space, a heap of straw. I think the point here is there's lots of different places where you can go, but secluded resting place. After returning from his alms round, after his meal, sits down, folded his legs crosswise, setting his body erect, and establishing mindfulness before him. So there we go. So that's kind of the mindfulness. It's not here, it's not given in the um, big, long exposition that we often hear, hear about the Satipatthana. Number 10, uh, should I'll, uh, is there, maybe I should inter- ask, are there any questions so far? I feel like the energy is going down in the room. I'm trying to think, what can I do to help bring this energy up? Okay, so um, 10 we'll talk about is abandoning the hindrances. There's five hindrances. And um, here it talks about not only what um, to do, abandon... um, Desire, abandon ill will, abandon 
restlessness, or maybe I think third is uh, sloth and torpor, fourth is restlessness, and fifth is doubt. These are the five um, hindrances. Gil just published a book that's on Amazon now about the hindrances, and that um, book is about mindfulness. Uh, It's about how to apply mindfulness. And when you look in the suttas, when they talk about how to work with the hindrances, a lot of it is being just aware of it. So in my mind, hindrances and mindfulness are really um, tied together. But um, not only is it... um, in the, the suttas is abandoning the hutrases. There's also the positive aspect. So not only are you abandoning this, in this particular, they use covetousness, but um, also greed. You um, purify your mind from covetousness. Not only are you abandoning ill will, you are having compassion for others. Not only are you abandoning sloth and torpor, you are being mindful and fully aware, and you are imagining light. Apparently that was a way to um, keep awake, was to imagine that it was really bright in your mind. And not only are you abandoning restlessness, but um, you are abiding, being peaceful. And not only are you abandoning doubt, you are um, abiding unperplexed about what is wholesome. So that's a part of um, abandoning the hindrances. And then we get to step 11 in number 27, abide in the jhanas. There's, I'm trying to think what I'm going to say here. There's four jhanas that are talked about in this sutta. And there's eight um, jhanas. We kind of can use that in some other suttas. We're not going to talk about the last four. We're just going to talk about the first four. And I, I see now that the way that I printed this out, my little table to get for my notes, um, didn't come through. So maybe that's a relief for you to hear about the jhanas. Um, I'll say this. The first jhana is about abiding and in rapture and pleasure born of seclusion. So there's this emphasis on goodness, for lack of a better word. The second jhana is about abiding in rapture and pleasure born from concentration. The third jhana is about a pleasant abiding with equanimity and mindfulness. And the fourth jhana has neither plain pain nor pleasure. It's just a purity of mindfulness due to equanimity. So I heard this um, analogy of the jhanas recently, which I thought was kind of interesting. You can think of the jhanas as a way that your mind... Um, has different capabilities than it does in our regular thinking mind. And one is um, as a telescope. So you can think that maybe um, the first jhana is like looking through a telescope. You can see things that you can't see otherwise. 
Maybe the second jhana is a little bit more powerful telescope, not just the one that you would buy down at the hobby store, but maybe something that a professional would use. The third jhana could maybe be something like the um, observatory that's on Mount Hamilton, right? You can see really things that you can't see with the second. And then the fourth jhana is like the Hubble telescope. Right? It's really out there. And not only can you see things that you can't see, like here on Earth, but the Hubble telescope, it's really quiet and peaceful out there. Right? There's no pain or pleasure out there. It's a really different kind of atmosphere. So that's one way to think about the jhanas. And I'm saying this because it kind of sets up what we're going to talk about after lunch too. That the mind in the jhanas is a different than the mind out here. I'll say one other thing, too, about um, the jhanas. You could also think about a microscope. Maybe the first jhana is looking in a microscope, and you can see cells. Probably all of us did this in grade school or high school biology, right? Or then um, maybe the second, um, they have dissecting microscopes. Maybe that's the first jhana, and the second one is the microscope. So you put slides under, you can see cells. Third one maybe is a... Uh, electron microscope you can see even finer and then the fourth one is not even a microscope maybe it's a linear accelerator like they have at Stanford and you can see subatomic particles right it's just really different it's just something completely different than what you can see uh, or what is seen with that so that's kind of what I, the message I want to send with the jhanas And there's beautiful similes that are um, associated with the jhanas that are um, not in this sutta, not in 27, but in 39, Madhama 39. And um, I'll think about later if we want to talk about those similes. Okay, so in 27, we talked about creating the conditions for um, meditation, first through um, becoming content, restraining the senses, having clear comprehension. And then we have mindfulness, abandoning the hindrances. I'm grouping together with mindfulness. And then abiding in the jhanas. I think all of us, probably, if you've been around the Dharma scene, you've heard this. This isn't so uh, new. What's maybe different is what's over there in the Chunky Sutta. Um, Zeal springs up. And applies will, scrutinizes, and strives. And that's the language. It doesn't tell us exactly, well, what are you applying your will towards? What are you scrutinizing? And what are you striving? So maybe I can ask you, do you have any ideas? Why do you think here in the Chunky Sutta it's so different than over there in the Chulahatipadupama Sutta? In a way, uh, it, it sounds to me a little bit like in 27, you, you said the Majima Nikaya is speaking to the new monk. So it's giving a stepwise how you do this. But the Chunky Sutta sounds a little bit to me like um, admonishing someone who does this all the time to really stay with it and work with it um, very assiduously. So that's what I take from it. 
Thank you, Liz. Yeah, that's really nice. I like that. So just kind of encourage them and perhaps in what they're already doing. Any other ideas? It seems like in the elephant's footprint, there's a lot of technical detail there about, you know, you have to know the hindrances and the jhanas, and that seems like it's more appropriate in the context of, I I think you said there was a a samana involved in that conversation, whereas in the Chanki Sutta, we're talking about Brahmins, and they may not have any idea about all this language. They would be confused by such a detailed description. I like where you're going, but um, in uh, 27, the Buddha is actually talking to Janusoni, who, and Janusoni was talking to an ascetic, but Janusoni is the, is the prime minister we could think of like him, something like this. But I, I like where you're going, though, because that maybe different people need different instructions or different types of people. Oh, okay. Um, what occurred to me was in, in, this, in the... Um, Chunky Sutta, he's talking to Brahmins who, I'll, I'll say this a, a little bit pejoratively, are kind of know-it-alls. I mean, they're kind of complacent in, we've got it. You know, we, we know, every, you know, everything that can be known is known, and we've got it all categorized in that. And so for a group like that, that sense of, you know, kind of um, exerting effort I, I guess sort of having to let go of what you think you know mm-hmm. and actually start doing the investigation and really, you know, kind of getting out of that mindset of it's all understood and um, making effort. That, that's what came to me. Oh, that's great. <coughs> Thank you. Thank you. And I think that... Um no, I think that's a great way to hold it. I was, I was thinking, sometimes I need somebody to be telling me, you know, zeal, how does this feel, and apply will, and scrutinize and strive, right? So um, it's uh, good for those people who think they already know everything, or, some, or, or I, I guess I don't think that I know everything, but it's just that it's sometimes good to encourage people to do that. Yes, and... Um, let's see. They're really different. And uh tell you the truth, the Chanki Sutra, um, it, it reminds me of the Protestant ethic. It makes me kind of nervous. Um, but um uh yeah, I think it's it must be addressing people with different starting points. Uh someone who is starting to become tent with what they have, you know, whether it's robes or alms, is starting somewhere different than someone who has zeal or is being told to have zeal, you know. It just seems like two really different approaches, but also maybe the starting point of the student uh, must be different. Yes, yes. Individuals who are um, receiving the teaching. So I'll add something here, because um, I don't want this piece of paper to be too authoritative, right? This is just me sitting at my computer... Maybe that's not even uh, samadhi at all. Maybe zeal, will, scrutinize, and strive 
Maybe I could have put that under, um, it could have been a precondition for the path. Or maybe it could have been a part of sila, right? I put it here under um, samadhi because in my mind, like scrutinizing, that's a part of um, clear comprehension and kind of and working with the hindrances is to know like what's wholesome, what's not wholesome, what should I pursue, what should I not pursue, kind of a part of right effort in general. And strive is, um, you know, to... Um, abide in the jhanas you, there's a certain amount of diligence that's required in order to do that so yes. uh, I think to me it feels like introvert and extrovert uh, can you say more? well I think the first one the elephant's footprint is the person is examining themselves more it's more inner reflection and the second one is more going out yeah Oh, that's interesting. That's a nice uh, we live in a it. country where maybe three-quarters of the people are extroverts, and that's a very strong value. So it may be, um, in the West, people may be going more the chonky direction with hmm. Buddhism. I don't know. Interesting. Yeah. Thank you for saying that. And then, um, now I forgot, there was one thing that I was going to say here, and then we'll um, end up it slips my mind. So um, maybe I want... To, oh, here we go. That I was thinking that in 27, that is the um, what to do. And maybe in 95 is maybe more how to do it. I don't know. I'm, I, you know, there's a number of ways that um, we can hold this. So um, just to kind of to sum up for Samadhi, there's that we can create the conditions... And then there's mindfulness and concentration. And they're uh, really different in these two different uh, suttas. So I'm going to propose that we break for lunch. And when we come back, we'll talk about panya. And then I'm going to introduce a third sutta that has a really different path of practice that includes the Brahma Viharas and includes... um, some other practices that is, now that we've gone, we will have gone through this will be really interesting kind of compare yet a third thing that's really different way to practice. So it's 12.10. How about if we come back at, uh, I don't know, I don't know how much time. Uh, um, how about 1.30? Is that fine? Yeah, an hour and 20 minutes. Okay, thank you. <laughs> 